0: You're listening to Cosmic Tonic. Oh yeah. Uh, okay, let me say <laughs> that again. <clears throat> <laughs>
1: Cosmic Tonic. Well, um, Jenny, your your edu- educational background and training is so rich and diverse. I wondered if we could start by you taking us through some of your, um, your background with astrology and also your, your background in academia thus far. Sure, let me start at
2: age 12 when I started <laughs> learning Latin. And um, that was when I realized I had a facility with dead ancient languages. And um, all through high school I studied Latin and poetry, modernist poetry. For the most part and I was in a creative writing program in high school and I really prided myself on being like a teenage literati um, you know in the way that teenagers do they need to feel special and my special power was poetry um, and so but really I, I became kind of obsessed with getting a PhD in Greek And that was my goal for myself. I I named that as a goal when I was 16. You know, some women want the MRS, so to speak, or the kids, and I wanted a PhD in Greek. And so I um, went for an undergraduate degree in classical philology, which is the way of saying Latin and Greek. And um, my focus really was the language, though I did study a lot of archeology span and I um, went to Greece and Egypt my sophomore year of college uh, on an archeological tour. And then I decided to go back to Greece for my junior year of college. And um, that's when I had a, my initial confrontation with modern Greek. I had already learned ancient Greek and I was you know, in courses translating Euripides and Sophocles and Plato which is a very intellectual exercise. And I would definitely say that that was my intention, was to be an intellectual (laughs) when I was a teenager. And, but when I was in modern Greece, or in Greece, in Athens, that was when I fell in love with modern Greece. And I have more I can say about that later. Um, But after I finished my undergraduate degree, I went on to get a master's degree in modern Greek which was a little bit controversial. Many of my professors wanted me to continue being a classicist. Um, And so the US government paid for me to receive a degree in modern Greek in the late 90s. And that set me up to work in Greece. But the irony is after that, I got a job working for Harvard University for a classics library And so I spent 10 years supporting classicists, professional classicists in their pursuit of their own scholarship. And from there, I was very much on the fence about whether I wanted that PhD, but eventually um, I did go back and get the PhD uh, in modern languages and literatures in Belgium. Um, And that was because I had been in academia for so long I figured out what was the right path to the PhD for me. And that was how I honored my 16 year old self <laughs> by finally getting the PhD. And I wrote my PhD about a modern Greek poet named George Seferis, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1963. That was long, but
1: <laughs> no it's perfect i i'm wondering if you could bring in some of your astrology studies as well did that interest manifest for you partly due to your interest in greek history and language and culture or did it come from a completely different angle
2: yeah it came from a completely different angle um it came from personal suffering and trying to understand what was going on in my life um, And at the time I discovered astrology, I had, uh, I was part of an, I am still part of an Indian uh, spiritual path that is, um, has Indian gurus and is a yogic spiritual path. And in our texts, you could say our sacred texts or the texts related to our gurus, they talk about astrology quite a bit. And so I was thinking that that was a way to get closer to my line of gurus, one of which was a great uh, Indian astrologer. There's an Ayanamsha in the Sidereal Zodiac named after him. For the first year or two, I was really dogmatic about um, using the Sidereal Zodiac, trying to understand what, what my gurus meant, what everything was. I think we can often start in astrology from a very judging place sometimes (laughs) in the sidereal sidereal versus tropical uh, debate can come off very um, dogmatic. And so I kind of stayed in that space for a long time teaching myself Western sidereal astrology and, uh, you know, in my bedroom uh, by myself. And then uh, eventually I realized that if I ever wanted to help people, I had to use the tropical zodiac. I'm an American woman living in the United States in the 21st century. And so I, I switched to the tropical zodiac. And, um, you know, I was looking for how to become a consulting astrologer when I met you all in our astrology apprenticeship training program. So I also have done some dabbling in Hellenistic astrology since then. And we can get into that. I took some of Demetra George's retreats, Um, but I find I'm conflicted about Hellenistic astrology. Um, And we can get into that whenever you're ready.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm really curious because you, you must be exceptionally unique in that you have a completely independent background in both ancient Greek language and literature and modern Greek language and literature. You've lived in Greece. It's a very live um, language for you the modern Greek anyway for someone who self professes as being interested in dead languages at, at a very young age <laughs>
3: um,
1: and at the same time you you entered astrology it sounds like through not only a, a different well of inspiration but also coming into a different sect of astrology and initially coming to sidereal and Indian astrology it sounds mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. And yet we're in a period right now where there is an incredible revival of interest in looking at the roots of the Western tradition. And I know that you've you've expressed to us some um, hesitation or maybe even skepticism about that. So I, I am really curious to hear what you think.
0: Yeah,
2: so I guess I'll preface my remarks by saying that my opinions or my impressions are are based on my emotions and my emotional connection to the tradition. And I'll start there by saying that when I was growing up, I really wanted a world that made sense to me. I I grew up without a written religion. I grew up without really a social context. My parents were hippies, you know, who just said we're giving up everything that we've known You know, we're giving up what our ancestors had. And I was raised in this sort of progressive post-civil rights environment that gave me um, a lot of freedom and open-mindedness, but not an understanding of tradition, either my personal tradition or the tradition of uh, our society. And so going to the classics was a way to approach that tradition. And I really wanted something. I could... I'm not sure I could have expressed it that way, but I wanted a religion. I wanted a worldview. I, I wanted to understand wh- why every poet was inspired by the Greek tradition. And so I spent a long time intellectually engaging with that tradition, but I, it took me many years to figure out that what I wanted was to understand myself. And so we often, it's the same, in the example with uh, traditional astrology or sidereal astrology, it's like we want that framework, that context to be able to explain our personal suffering. Um, and frequently it's, it's a very intellectual engagement with it. And it feels safe, you know, to have a context, to have a tradition. And especially, I mean, I went on to, to teach Uh, Greek literature briefly uh, at a higher, at a, you know, land-grant-based university in, in Missouri. And I watched myself justify what I had to offer to students based on this great tradition. And I asked myself, why am I doing this? You know, it, it feels like I'm trying to justify my own smallness and disconnection through this great tradition. And um, so subsequently, I've thought critically about the ideas, ideals, vision of Greece, of ancient Greece, that I have promoted throughout my life and my career. When I worked for Harvard University, I organized nine Um, study tour vacations for Harvard alumni, for wealthy Harvard alumni to travel around to ancient sites. I have participated in, let's say, commodifying and like kind of that tradition uh, from an emotional and intellectual perspective. And I think the tradition is important, but if we're not talking about what it means to us, then we're leaving a lot unsaid and we're we're kind of that's where the dogma comes in because we all need in this rootless postmodern nearly apocalyptic western moment we're living in we're and we're all astrologers like we're trying to help people figure out you know some sort of symbology some sort of compass some sort of tradition to relate our suffering to um So my specific conflicts around Hellenistic astrology really have to do with that, that it's, uh, it feels like astrology's, um, reactive swing towards the ancient past as an anchor for something that we actually have lost and we don't really have it. We're, we're all conversing with ghosts. And, you know, whether it's the ghost of Manilius or Dorotheus, you know, as, as, a, as a basis for how we practice astrology, it's important to understand where, how we got here. But if you make it the entire framework, you lose the moment, the present moment. But speaking from an emotional side, this is a conflict for me. Like, I really understand why we need that right now.
3: And I guess I'd be curious, say a little bit more about that need that we have right now, because I know it's getting woven through some of what you said, but I guess I'm curious what you've landed on. And then this may become sort of a two-part question, but also what's bringing more meaning to your current practice of astrology.
2: So I see the debate in the field, mostly like kind of the debate between Hellenistic astrology and this so sort of more orthodox, we will do astrology the way they did it in 300 AD um, uh, mentality um, as being generational. Um, you see it led by millennials and people younger and it's very reactive uh, against so let's say the Pluto and Leo generation of astrology which is takes a more um, eastern uh, religious perspective in terms of karma, the nodes, outer planets representing something that's vague and transformational. Um, and I think that a lot of young people interpret evolutionary astrology, just the word evolutionary, as um, they, they they object to the idea that we, we have a linear Darwinian progress, pro- progressive spiritual or social evolution and i can really understand that because you know as a gen xer i grew up in the shadow of the pluto and leo generation and the hippie generation and all of their ideas um but so there's a swing to look towards something that is um western objective doesn't rely on it it feels concrete and and i mean you can really understand how young people Grew up in a world completely in flux, why they would object to the idea that, you know, somehow all of these horrible things that they've experienced are leading towards a social, some sort of social or spiritual evolution, and why they'd want the context, you know, the Saturnian container of a text and a method and, you know, the themamundi Mundi and essential dignities and zodiacal releasing and all of these techniques that feel grounded because they're they're old Mm
1: -hmm. well i think it's a way of adding um even importing that intellectual rigor that has been Mm -hmm. profoundly lacking from a lot of pop astrology that Mm -hmm. many of us in many many of us millennials grew up in so you know i grew up reading and loving pop astrology but it lacked Mm -hmm. any kind of Mm -hmm. (laughs) um Rigor, and I, and for me, that's my own um, enchantment. Actually, with mm. with looking at these resurrected ancient techniques, and coming from an academic background as well, it it has created a sense, whether um, deserved or not, it has created a sense of validity, and yeah. it somewhat quieted those voices that question whether this is all a bunch of you know, right airy fairy woo stuff which I'm into woo stuff but there's a part of me that that really does crave that grounding and that and that um that degree of logic and that degree of of um pushing our minds but I um you you know you said you said over email that you you found something problematic about adopting this more stoic worldview or or kind of um maybe even idealizing the 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 assumptions from these ancient thinkers, and and obviously you've been enchanted by the same things that mm-hmm. we have been, which is why mm-hmm. I think your perspective is so valuable and so unique. So maybe could you could you share a little bit about what you find problematic about adopting some of these worldviews um, as a as a foundation
2: for astrology? Yeah, I think that you you said a key word, which is validity, and I've been questioning, you know. Why I needed that to put that you know because the intellectual rigor was the the main focus of my education you know how how can you um, provide an exegesis of this text you know perfectly with the with the most intellectual rigor possible and it left no space for creative freedom and so Um, it left no space for me to have my own interpretation and and that's one part of you know sort of like justifying the validity of astrology I mean to me astrology is valid because it's the original astronomy it's the relationship between us and the divine mystery and the way that the cosmos speaks to us but for you know just speaking about astrology it's inferiority complex for a minute we're living in a data-driven empirically um you know western scientific materialism and so the traditional container is a framework that can keep out uh everything ironically that science has discovered in a way since 300 AD, you know there are a lot of younger astrologers who don't use outers, don't use asteroids. I mean, that's the way um, many eminent and wonderful teachers teach, but that's not where we are in this moment. So how how do you find some sort of balance between the traditional container and all that we've learned about the heavens? at this moment and what what's our role as astrologers it's a huge one and i'm a work in progress because i do use hel- hel- some hellenistic techniques i still use some techniques from Chiotish, um, with my clients and then you know we'll get into the ways that i use asteroids but i want to make another point too which is that My experience in modern Greece was very much the same as my experience with astrology in that I approached it from, I approached Greece from an intellectual, um, somewhat judgy, dogmatic place before I got there. Like I'm just going to go and I'm going to go to the Acropolis every day and you know I'm going to spend hours in the museum and I'm going to impress all my teachers because I really (laughs) valued you know, being praised for my intellect. And when I got there, I saw this nation that had so much other richness to offer, but it was like dying under the weight of having to justify itself as like the birthplace of civilization to the rest of Western Europe and to the world for its own um, authenticity, you know, so that it could further its very real geopolitical challenges in the Balkans and on and on and on. And everybody in that place walks around with the burden of this tradition. And, you know, as astrologers, we lost that. But, but it's a, it's still a, an appropriate analogy, like, we have the burden that our discipline, you know, is not considered legitimate, very much the way modern Greece was not considered um, a legitimate society and they needed the Western powers and Russia to justify themselves becoming a country and breaking away from the Ottoman Turks. So, and, and I also experienced that in, in classical philology, like in teaching classics, you know, you're always trying to justify yourself against the humanities being cut and, you know, why students should study Greek. And it just got to be like an avalanche of, wait a minute, you know, this is, has so much to offer but we're using it as a bulwark against what we've lost and we don't have a lot of freedom. Like I did not have intellectual freedom to, to write and to speak and to be who I thought I could be in the ancient tradition, which is why I switched to modern Greek literature.
1: Yeah. It seems like you chose to engage with the animate kind of writhing, messy life Mm -hmm. alternative. Yeah,
4: absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Can you tell us about your heretical thoughts
2: around essential
1: dignity and the thema (laughs)
2: mundi? Yeah, I mean, so there's a wonderful Demetra George lecture about the thema Thema mundi you can get on her website. And um, at the end of it, she talks about how so the thema mundi, you know, is sacred geometry, essentially. And in that sense, it's very beautiful and awe-inspiring. And and every time that we engage with a chart, we're engaging with that sacred geometry and, and that mystery. But at the end of Demetra George's lecture, she talks about how, I mean, the whole lecture is really about the context for the Thema Mundi arising in Greco, um, in Hellenized Egypt. And at the end she mentions that you know they think maybe the person who invented the themamundi channeled it and i think that's such a perfect encapsulation of like we make the themamundi be definitive and it and it is it's a rational logical container for our practice but the aspect of you know how did it come to be and what does it represent it represents the sacred worldview of Hellenized Egypt at that time, and just the ascendant in Cancer and the things about it. Um, you know, the fact that there are no outer planets; they didn't know about outer planets, like et cetera, et cetera. So, what I I think that younger astrologers use the dignities especially and not just younger but people who are are into traditional astrology it becomes it becomes sort of a means to an end or it becomes like the whole thing all that astrology is is you know in my personal chart i have two planets in detriment and one planet in fall and like will i ever overcome that <laughs> you know and so i think that there's risks when when confront when consulting with real humans mm-hmm. how they would interpret their Venus in Virgo if you say that to a client. Uh, you know what what views we get of ourselves and do we have um, do we have responsibility and authority over our own lives or are we doomed? And if you want to, we can get into my thoughts around the fate versus free will question. But I think that is this sort of essential dignity scheme, the way it's been conceived of right now, feels like a lot of young people are kind of attached to the idea of fate and being doomed. It's my emotional reaction. Um, you know, will I ever find love? <laughs> my, my Venus is in Virgo or whatever, you know, kind of thing. So
1: I I am curious then how you identify with the essential dignities. And and you mentioned that you have a a few planets that are either in detriment or in fall. And how have you fruitfully oriented yourselves to the yourself rather to the, um, to what's available to those planets? Like one way I've heard, uh, Mm -hmm. younger or, um, yeah, younger astrologers who, who are into traditional astrology discuss the, um, the debilities is um, that maybe those planets have less agency or there's something that's blocking them, perhaps systemically. So I'm wondering if you've, if you've engaged with that way of thinking about them or just what has been useful for you to understand those planets of yours specifically that are in fall or that are in detriment?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that what I've been, what's been most fruitful for me is approaching it from yes, that perspective of, of what does the planet need and, and what is the emotional valence of its, um, its challenges. But I look at it more in terms of the whole picture of the chart and how each planet in in detriment or fall is part of an organic whole and maybe those planets represent parts of ourselves that we haven't had full access to. And so in in my work, um, in my therapeutic work with clients, maybe doing an astrological consultation or in the uh, modality that I use called compassion inquiry, I would see those planets as parts of ourselves that are perhaps in conflict and need to be um, need to be approached with kindness and care and understand what they're trying to tell us about ourselves our lives our interaction with the world and and to be slowly integrated um, and brought and brought to bear or, or to have their, their, their power unlocked. You know, I have the sun in Aquarius in the ninth. You, you would never say meeting me that I haven't actualized that. (laughs) I have a PhD and I'm super intellectual, you know? So, but even though, you know, the sun is in detriment, right? So I did it, I did it my way. I got my PhD my way. And I'm still uh, on the spiritual path in my way, but there has been a lot of struggle to feel safe to express that son.
3: And I'm curious, did you, you started to mention the compassionate inquiry. Is that something we want to flow into? Cause I am really so intrigued by your creative process, your background, and then how did that come upon for you and really coming to this place? Because I know on your website, you also talk about this trauma informed astrology. Mm -hmm. When
2: I started practicing as an astrologer, um, I didn't have a lot of training in terms of the therapeutic space. I, I think our apprenticeship set us up decently to be able to do that. But I, you know, kind of began feeling a little anxious about how I was going to counsel people, and I had some initial experiences where I, you kind of, where a lot of trauma and emotion comes out in, in an astrology reading, and so I started to think seriously about how I wanted to, if I wanted to continue being an astrologer, knowing that I would have to develop my own ability to hold a therapeutic container for my clients. Um, I have a lot of experience working with people, working with students, being in challenging situations, but that wasn't exactly the same as, as understanding the therapeutic process. And I, I, I really wanted a framework around that, but I did not want another degree. Um, <laughs> so I just, this is part of where I guess you shade over into my spiritual side is that I prayed and meditated quite a bit about what was the way to go about finding the skills I needed. And um, Chiron, by transit, was transiting my natal Vesta. This was uh, April, 2019, it's there now again. And I um, meditated and I asked, how am I going to get these counseling skills that I need? and I heard a voice in my inner ear say Gabor Mate, and I finished my meditation session and I Googled Gabor Mate Spiritual Counseling, and the Compassionate Inquiry Program popped up. I watched all the YouTubes, and a week later I signed up to be part of the first year course. Um, I I knew who Gabor Mate was, but I wasn't like an acolyte or a devotee of Gabor and the program just seemed to offer everything I needed in a year to truly be trauma informed. And, um, so I completed it last week. Yay. Congratulations. Congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> Yay. And I went from, you know, I have been, uh, in, you could say Jungian analysis for eight years before I started the program. And I had uh, confronted a lot of my trauma, but compassionate inquiry does it in a way that's highly embodied. And the goal of compassionate inquiry is to, um, to get the client into the present moment in terms of linking their physical sensations their um, mental stories or interpretations about what's happening to them and the emotions that are underneath. And it really is a process to join, let's say, those three human (laughs) uh, instincts. And um, for those of you who know about Gabor Mate, he has a particular view of trauma. Mm -hmm. And his approach to trauma is that it's not... Trauma is not what happened to you. It wasn't the rape. It wasn't the injury. It wasn't the neglect from your parents. It's the disconnect uh, on the in- inner level between your sense of wholeness or authentic self um, and your ability to, to express that in the world. That's what trauma really is. And so compassionate inquiry is a method that's um, It's not actually a method Gabor Mate would disagree with that. It's an approach (laughs) to counseling people that helps them, mirrors them and helps them to see their experiences with greater compassion and to integrate different parts of themselves like when I was mentioning essential dignities and planets as different parts of ourselves. Compassionate inquiry relies a lot on uh, the teachings of internal family systems Um, and so the, the approach helps people reconnect these different parts of themselves and not make them wrong. So, you know, like, like if you have an addiction, for example, compassionate inquiry helps you see that your addiction is trying to fulfill a need and that it represents, you know, a valid part of yourself or a valid strategy. And we look at what's the emotion underneath that um, and help you see that that's not wrong. It's just that the addiction is creating a lot of pain and suffering, Mm -hmm. for example. So, um, yeah, I'll pause there and see what other questions
4: you have.
0: Have you been able to use this in your astrology practice yet, Jenny? Yeah, I do.
2: Um, I can't, do both at one in one session. Okay. It's really not appropriate in the sense that we need, we need an open space, not focused on the chart. We need to not have the chart be the focus, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the themes that come up in the reading, um, we can, if a client wants to, we can then look at, um, in a compassionate inquiry session. And I definitely am now able to hold the same space as I do in a confession inquiry session in a client
3: reading, which is my goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To have that continuity between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been beautiful witnessing you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm curious with the, compassionate inquiry that you're practicing my sense just from knowing you really well and also reading your website further is this this trauma-informed astrology there's another part to it with the what's referred to I guess as the centauric process is that a Mm -hmm. it's a Melanie Reinhardt term I don't know I I saw that and I just wasn't Mm -hmm. sure but I'm curious how you've been Merging the two, and if you'd want to introduce the centaurs to us at all, because I'm not going to yeah, dare sure. pronouncing
2: your name correctly.
3: Yeah, no problem. So, um, and the work of... with David, of course, too. I just wanted to mention that you've been doing a lot of work with David Leskowitz as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, where I yeah. learned everything I know about the centaurs. Um, in terms of trauma-informed astrology you don't necessarily need centaurs at all. Um, You know, you can see plenty of signatures and we could have a whole nother podcast about that, you know, things that we see in charts um, related to trauma. But the centaurs uh, specifically are a set of asteroids um, that are in the Kuiper Belt or that uh, represent The pathway towards confronting and healing trauma. And, um, there's probably about 10 or 12 right now that have been discovered in the 90s and 2000s. But the main ones that I work with are Chiron, and I'll pause there, Chiron, uh, Folis, Kari Klo, and Okiroi. Um, and what the centaurs represent in, in myth is the transition, I would say, from, um, from a hunter-gatherer society to a civilization. And um, Eliza and Jasmine, you guys kind of touched on that in your YouTube uh, about Chiron and um, the astrology community. But um, so the centaurs in Greek, in the Greek imagination, um, were part of Greece becoming a civil, ancient Greece becoming a civil civilization. In in many of the myths, um, you know, the kind of the centaurs occupy both the wild and civilized world. And so, the centaur asteroids in astrology are really about duality um, and the ways that as humans we are forced to to try and integrate polarities or dualities in our lived experiences all the time and that creates trauma Uh, all you know the trauma of living in a civilized world disconnected from nature for example is a huge one And um, compassionate inquiry teaches that many of the traumas that we're carrying in our bodies are from uh, like the first three to five years of life. And that these happen in our environment and that our society is riddled with trauma because of the way it's set up, because we don't live connected to nature. We don't live in a, in a tribal or supportive way. We live very unnaturally, you could say. So, um, the centaurs in, in the chart can represent specific pathways to healing, healing our Saturnian traumas. Um, and and integrating different pieces of our essential nature. And um, many of them have uh, healing reputations in the ancient tradition. Chiron, starting with Chiron, that Chiron is kind of the Ur-Centaur because he represents the principle of transmuting and integrating pain and turning it into a strength and a power that you can use to heal others. Um, Chiron's wife is called Kariklo and she was a nymph, not a centaur, but according to um, centaur astrology or astronomy, that object in the sky is a centaur uh, asteroid. And is her name means spinner of grace and you often see Kariklo in the charts of people who are energy healers because she really represents, I would say the feminine aspect of grace in the way that it can, um, it can really transform our trauma like through sudden, uh, through sudden healing. And furthermore, uh, the work of David Leskowitz, uh, he's an energy healer who has corresponded these centaurs to various uh, places in our energy body, different chakras, you could say. And Kari represents the sacral chakra. So when you guys did your episode about the sacred prostitute with Anya Katz, you were really rightly exploring the archetype of Vesta. I would say that Kriklo is the feminine power, almost like the source of feminine energy that Vesta might use to heal.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, and then there's Folis who is also, um, also in the same myth cycle as Chiron. Pholus was the garter of the wine that was uncorked and mm. provoked the melee. Follis, mm. you could say, represents the healing between our Saturnian world and Neptunian states, like the alcohol, the ambrosia of the wine, you know, sort of mm. sacred ambrosia. And so that's an example of how the centers also help us reintegrate into our bodies and our lives the um, states of consciousness that we experience uh, in a more Neptunian way. Drug trips, ecstasy, mm-hmm. anything where we're not really conscious of ourselves and our boundaries. And so uh, Kestrel was asking about centauric processes. Centauric processes help um, to smooth out and, and um, soften the the confrontation with these different um, opposing states of consciousness? Like, are you fully rational? Or are you in a trance? (laughs) Or what happened when you had that near-death experience that you can't tell anyone about? Um, Or, you know, you went into a state of ecstasy one day accidentally in meditation, and how does that become a part of who you are? So these are all examples of centaur healing
1: i'm really intrigued by um the, a phrase you use in the midst of your explanation of of the saturnian trauma and in the context of centaurs where they are um you know representing in some way half beast and half civilized i'm using air quotes here uh civilized man civilized human um does this atonian trauma link especially to the trauma of civilization of um, yes, imperialism
2: and and absolutely in my view. and um I've been reading a lot about um I just read a four hundred page book about the archaeology of proto-indo- European civilization and that civilization domesticated horses. It domesticated horses, and it spread throughout all of Europe and Asia, and it created a pastoral, the pastoral society that, it didn't create it, but it, it let's say, franchised um, keeping animals, raising herds of animals, Uh, domesticated agriculture it wasn't the only place that domesticated agriculture emerged but the um, the horse really allowed what we know as Western civilization to come into being because all of Europe pretty much with a few exceptions uh, are descended from Indo-European society and so um, I definitely think the centaurs represent that trauma in some ways.
1: Hmm. Yeah, we made a, in in the, in the one of the episodes that you alluded to where Jasmine and I um, looked at Chiron and um, guru figures, including some people in the astrology community. Um, one thing that occurred to me was I kept thinking about how we off, the way that we perceive Charon is he is, um, there's a story of alienation in terms of his relationship with his mother and of exile. And, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but link that also to what we see with Lilith. And if you look at yeah. those ancient poems of Inanna, she's, mm-hmm. you know, she's booted from that tree, um, mm-hmm. from the trunk of the tree that she was inhabiting. And it seems like There is like that, those poems of Inanna do seem to be um, writing down in some ways that transition from wildness to civilization, to carving that tree for the marriage bed and throne of the queen. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how the centaurs, they embody in a very literal way that Mm -hmm. duality which we all still i would say carry even if it's less obvious absolutely
2: and it makes us feel abandoned i mean the perception of abandonment that people have in their relationships right now especially right now where we're isolated i mean we're going through a moment where we all feel basically cut off from nurturing ostracized Mm -hmm. from our community Our tribes. I mean, thank God for the internet. (laughs) But yeah, I definitely. I mean, Chiron in his myth, uh, you know, he was orphaned or 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 rejected, Mm -hmm. you could say, by his Mm -hmm. father. Um. So yes, and the healing that the centaurs offer is reconnecting these parts of ourselves. And one of the things that trauma does is it cuts off our ability to To ask for what we need, to ask for nurturing. We think, mm. you know, we're not worthy of it. And so, I mean, I really feel the centaurs influence my therapeutic practice because I help people feel safe to be vulnerable and get the intimate connections that they really desperately need.
1: I'm curious if one centaur has claimed you particular or if if one centaur in particular has um has taught you something special that you want to share with us
2: sure so Kestrel mentioned that i work with david leskowitz who um is the centaur guy and um he's a brilliant astrologer brilliant intellect but also a very uh skilled energy healer and so the centaurs came to him um, you could say through channeling or through his own psychic ability, but he also works with them in a concrete, literal way. Uh, and so he and I offer uh, energetic attunements, which is extremely woo-woo for, the, uh, uh, for a lot of people, really. But together, we help you um, experience the energy of these centaurs that I mentioned. So we've been doing that about a year and a half um, Mm -hmm. together. And so, yes, through that experience, I would say there is one centaur who has claimed me. Um, And that would be Okiroi, uh, who I haven't mentioned previously, who her name means swift flowing stream. And Mm -hmm. she's the daughter of Chiron and Kiriklo. And she was punished for her prophecies. She prophesied that Chiron would die, and she was punished for that. And she really represents the archetype of like a Cassandra, if yeah. you know um, Cassandra's myth. And energetically, she heals the throat chakra. And um, we envision her, her energy as an iridescent sparkle that comes over you and I feel her come through my crown chakra and down and you know heal my own very real challenges to expressing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and David makes amulets for the centaurs as well that you can use, which is a very traditional astrological signature that is all the rage right now. And uh, he makes Okiroi amulets, which I even have in my pocket to help my words flow oops it has an omega on it you can see well emulate
1: or not it's working (laughs) (laughs) it's
0: definitely working and i know that david practices astral magic do you also practice astral magic jenny no i don't at all it's really not my wheelhouse
2: i i don't feel comfortable with it it's not something i i i do i mean although I think one of the reasons David practices astral magic without speaking for him is that he comes from a traditional um, Buddhist and Hindu influenced practice and mantra and prayers are really important. Um, And so in that way, I do have a relationship to language that is sacred, but Mm -hmm. I don't practice astral magic.
0: Thank you. Maybe
1: this would be a good moment to hear one of the poems that you've translated now that we're talking about language again and the power of language?
2: Sure. So um, I translate the poet George Seferis. He was um, born in 1900 in what is now called Turkey um, in, in a place called Smyrna or Izmir, which is a very famous site on the Aegean coast and it was the site of great flourishing of Greek civilization, and um, in world, after World War One, he lost his connection to this place because uh, the Greeks were forcibly exiled, and so I began translating his poetry because I wanted to honestly see whether the, you could receive the effects of this trauma in his poetry and it's a, that was a very taboo subject like Everyone knows that he was a refugee from what they call Asia Minor But it was always you know, there are these echoes and he would never really talk about it so I wrote an entire dissertation about the trauma of being uprooted from your homeland that you could see in his poetry and through that experience I really felt, though there were wonderful translations available in English that helped get him the Nobel Prize, that I couldn't write what I wanted to write without retranslating it and coming up with my own set of symbols and kind of like, and not kind of, specific words for, for the um, emotional, um, symbolic, and kind of energetic complexes that, that he talked about. So that took me a very long time. It took me a long time to feel confident in my translations. I finished my PhD um, in December of 2013, and now I'm finally finishing my first manuscript of his translations. And this particular manuscript hasn't been translated into English. It's what was left behind in his papers and his diaries when he passed away in 1971. And so it's very... It's the unorthodox Seferis, it's ribald. Um, Seferis, I should also say, was a diplomat for the Greek state and he um, needed to be neutral, apolitical, uh, even though he experienced civil war, two world wars, um, the Cyprus crisis as a diplomat for for Greece. So the poem that I'm gonna read for you now is um, a draft poem for, that was not included in his greatest known work, which was called Mitistorima. And mythistorima is very much a modernist pseudo-epic that um, is influenced by T.S. Eliot and many modernists' fascination with Homer. And um, people called it a backwards odyssey or like the, the wasteland meets the odyssey because it takes place in a uh, Aegean Greek landscape where all the characters are heroes or anti-heroes, more anti-heroes, who are trapped in this landscape and can't actualize their potential. So the poem that I'm going to read for you is like a very short symbolic explanation of what Seferis thought about myth. And afterwards, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. So, would you like me to read it in Greek? Yes. Please, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I'll read it in Greek first. And it's called the final chorus, as in the chorus in an ancient tragedy.
4: O τελευταίος χορός Ένα παραλαγμένο παραμύθι Ξεπληρώνουμε κι εμείς Κι οι άλλοι Όπως και οι αποτεφρώμενοι γέροντες που είχαν ραβδιά στα χέρια και μιλούσαν ήρεμα. Το βουρκωμένο λουτρό, το δίχτυ, το μαχαίρι, η πορφύρα και η φωνή που ρωτούσε για τη θάλασσα, ποιος θα την εξαντλήσει; τρέψανε τη ζωή μας. Την αγάπη μας την πείναμε σιγά-σιγά, μας φαίνονταν κατά πότιο για μυθλητατισμό όσπου το τέλος ήρθε και απονεκρώθηκε. Αλήθεια, πάντα φρόνημα μα οδήγησε ο λαός μας. Αρκεί το βίος, τούτη η ζωή, ανάμεσα παντέλη και ημετό και πάρνηθο, πάρνηθα. Όπως οι ρίζες, οι ρίζες δεν μαραίνονται εύκολα, δεν φεύγουν εύκολα τα μοιάσματα, της αλλοφροσύνης, της αδικιάς, της καινοσπουδιάς τρεις χιλιάδες χρόνια και περισσότερα πάνω στους ίδιους βράχους πληρώνουμε το παραλλαγμένο παραμύθι λυπήσου εκείνους που The final chorus, an altered
2: folk tale, that's what we're paying off. All the others too, like our elders who held canes and spoke serenely, and were reduced to ashes. The murky bath, the net, the knife, the deep-hued purple, and the voice that questioned the sea. Who could drain it? These symbols nourished our life. We imbibed our love drop by drop. It seemed a poison pill to build our immunity, until the end came and our love was eradicated. Truly, our people always guided us with prudence. Enough of life, this life, encircled by Mounts Bendeli and Hymettus and Parnitha. But the roots, the roots don't wither easily. They don't easily disappear, the defilements of madness, of injustice, of vain pursuits. We're paying off an altered folktale on these very same rocks for 3,000 years and more. Pity those who are yet to come. And this poem was in his diaries, dated November 26, 1934.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, Jenny. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: That was beautiful, Jenny. (laughs) I almost want to have you read another one. (laughs) (laughs) You said that
1: Safaris has Chiron on the ascendant.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Chiron,
2: his ascendant's at 22 Sag, and he has Chiron Mm. at 25 Sag. Mm. Wow, I'm just letting like the
1: language
3: sort of seep into I know.
4: Me. I can feel the
3: deep purple drop mm. by drop.
4: <laughs> yeah, so
2: those are that's re- that section references. Um, Aeschylus is Agamemnon, mm. and it's about mm. Clytemnestra killing Agamemnon, and there's a scene where um, just before he's killed, it's called like. I think It's called the carpet scene in class the classical world where she says that all the fine robes that have been dyed the purple of the murex shell, which is now extinct, that was like the royal purple, should be laid out for um, Agamemnon to step upon as he re enters the house after coming back from Troy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, um, Oh, look, the king is back, isn't he amazing? And now I'm going to slaughter him. <laughs> <laughs> And so Seferi's, this poem is one where he speaks, I think directly about an idea that his poetry explores, which is that Clytemnestra's killing of Agamemnon is a kind of essential hubris that even modern Greeks are still paying for. Mm -hmm. That even though it was resolved at the end of uh, the humanities I forget how we say that in English. Do you call it the humanities? Yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm saying it correctly. <laughs> so at the, at the end of the humanities, it's somehow resolved, you know, the furies become placated and they become protectors of the city of Athens. But that underneath those rocks, you know, those rocks still hold the poison
0: mm. and
2: the, the poison is still seeping into modern greek society and you know what who how will the poison ever be taken out or healed mm-hmm. right such a chironic <laughs> question mm-hmm.
1: <Yeah>. very chironic <laughs> yeah and and you know the poison potentially being a metaphor for for trauma for mm-hmm. these centauric processes that you've taken us through and like kestrel asked
0: about earlier <laughs> So where can people find you, Jenny? Yeah,
2: my website is Amalfia Astrology. That's A-M A-L T H E A Astrology.com. And I'm on Instagram at Amalfia Astrology. And I'm on Twitter in my
0: Greek name Zenaki. Uh, T-Z-E-N-A-K-I. And do you have any other special announcements that you want to make as far as what you're up to? Uh,
2: If folks are interested in centaurs, you can get in touch with me um, or David Leskowitz at centaurs.space. And we offer monthly free uh, attunements to meet the centaurs and experience their energy. And, um, I also offer compassionate inquiry uh, for anyone who needs that, uh, type of healing in this difficult time. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing just all of
1: your, your wisdom and your experiences and your intuitions and your, your, um, protests as well. (laughs) I really, I found it, um. It's everything you have to say is so rich and juicy and I just I'm looking forward to sitting with it over the next few days. Thank you.
2: Thank you for making space for my thoughts and my words and my feelings.
0: Mm-hmm. Anytime, anytime. <laughs>
2: and Kestrel,
1: where can we find you?
3: I just want to say first just how moved i am by this as well and just i'm so grateful for this friendship with you and i have experienced the centaur attunement and have just really benefited from it so i highly recommend that to our audience and people can find me at kestrelneathawk.com that's k-e-s-t-r-e-l-n-e-a-t-h-a-w-k.com and also at kesaru on instagram And my lovely
0: hosts,
3: (laughs) where can we find you?
0: You can find us at CosmicTonic.com. And our Instagram is at CosmicTonic. And our Twitter handle is Cosmic underscore Tonic. And we'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. And we will see you next time. Bye. 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 (laughs)
1: I'm going be the full suspect. I'm going the full suspect.